Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. So, um, this book is about um, a dual narrative, and everything about the book is about duality, so war versus peace, um, war, reconciliation, uh, dichotomies of identity, so um, trauma versus reconciliation. So the book is divided into two narratives. One is told from the perspective of the father, who's, uh, who's, uh, the, the story would start out in 2006, and he would go back to the past of his life. So it's told in a sort of a backward chronology. And he's the, uh, a South Vietnamese soldier who fought in the war. And the other narrator is a child who's about seven or eight at the time, and she tells the story of how the war affected her, uh, starting from the present onward, but her present is from 63 on. So the way I structured the book is the father's story starts in 2006 and goes backward in time, and the girl's story starts in um, 63 and goes forward to 2006 and then they meet in the middle. So I think that what I would read is maybe the first part, just the very beginning. <clears throat> it, I have to find sections that are standalone sections also so that limits what I can read but I think this will work. And this is the story of the girl and her sister which is at this point a very idyllic existence and it's meant to be sort of a precious existence on purpose because this is on the cusp of 63, which is the assassination of President Xi, um, which then led to the greater uh, U.S. involvement during the war. <clears throat> our, our mother drives with an elegant, carefree manner, one hand casually on the steering wheel. My sister and I picture her driving through the streets of Cholon in our Peugeot, a hulk of sleek black metal winding its way through this spark plug of a city filled with open-air markets. Cholon is where we live and where she conducts her business. Cholon, she alone is in charge of our family's finances. She keeps the records and maintains the books. It is in this unprepossessing Chinese city adjacent to Saigon that she makes our family fortune. We have a chauffeur, but our mother often drives herself. Demonstrations organized by monks have begun to disrupt the city, but she is not afraid. She is intimately familiar with these streets, even the unmarked ones that dissolved into begrimed dead ends. The Chinese merchants trust her. Perhaps it is because she is herself part Chinese, although you would have to go back several generations to prove it. Tonight she has just returned from an evening out with our father. The Peugeot is parked in our driveway, its black paint highlighted by swags of molded silver and chrome. Mother is resplendent in her satin audiai as she arranges its folds on her lap, then sits with her back against the headboard of our bed. Her hair, shiny and black, is tied in a chignon at her neck, and she's wearing pearl drop earrings. Daylight slowly extinguishes itself, and a lavender darkness creeps through the window. The street lights have come on. We are inside the meshed enclosure of white mosquito netting. I don't allow any whiteness to touch my head. White is the color of death and mourning, levitating above me even as, as I sleep. 
A mother reaches into a straw bag and pulls out a book, but she will not need to read from it. These are well-waxed passages she knows by heart. I lean against her body and ready myself to listen. She and our dad recited these verses to each other when they first met. It is hard to imagine a time when they existed without us, but still I try to picture their time together before my sister and I were born. The sound of their laughter as they walk hand in hand, the velvet green uplands of rice fields waiting to greet them. Once in a while, my mother will lengthen the story with paper and pen if I demand some similar evidence of her bond to our father. Her pen makes swift scratching sounds as it inks out the strokes of her signature. It combines her name with our father's, his name first attached to hers after. Our father's signature similarly conjoins his name with hers in reverse order. We know it is impossible not to that our parents are linked in many inward and outward ways. Our mother's eyes rest on us. My sister, Ken, smiles back, but I know her attention is elsewhere. She is fixated on the book's pagination, on the tiny numbers tucked in the upper right-hand corners. Numbers captivate Ken. She dwells in a world of equations and straight spine rules that are constant and predictable. Mine is a world of fantasy and mystery, words unloosing themselves, producing secret tangled lies that float into my imagination. Still, I am certain at that moment that my sister and I share the same lustrous dream. Around each of our necks is an identical chain, fine gold with a circuit of jade, now a pale apple green that over time will mature into a deep dark luster. Sometimes in the evening we gather among the ravenous vines that meander through our mother's gardens. There in an unruly tangle of fern-like shrubbery are clumps of plants with feelings. The mimosa is sensitive and shy, reluctant to offend. My sister says, it clasps its leaves inward against its chest when touched. I brush my legs against the leaves, all at once as if they were fully on beat and part of a well-disciplined choir. The entire being of the plant, stems and leaves alike, reorients itself to bend modestly toward the ground. Tonight, against the green stretch of ground cover, is an explosion of small, fluffy pink flowers that bloom like stars. A declivity of earth and blue stone pebbles surrounds the mango tree, and I crouch there behind a giant earthenware jar, my favorite place to hide. Next to the mango is our starfruit tree, its branches bearing green fruits the shape of a five-point star. It is how starlight tastes, my sister says. Our mother told us she herself had planted it from an original cutting when she and father first moved into our house. Chen has etched her initials and mine on its brindle trunk. I'm still hiding. Tendrils coil and brush against my bare legs. The air smells of frangipani blooms. Khan leans against me and together we draw into our lungs their flowery fragrance. A violet twilight swaddles us in a benign glow. I love the evening most of all, the ritual, at least when our father is at home, of hiding in the murky night and waiting to be found, his giant black military boots trudging through the brambles and ground cover. From where we hide, he cuts an imposing figure. The jungle green on his military fatigue ripples. Our swing sets squeaks. Ordinary noises startle us as we settle into a hushed silence to practice invisibility. 
street vendors peddling bean cakes with their syncopated voices. I make myself small behind the jar, holding my breath as if my life depends on it. But of course our father will soon be upon us, swooping us into captivity, cupping my belly with his large hand and flinging me onto his shoulders. I rub my bare legs against the stubbles of his cheeks. His arms, lithely muscled, will hold me in place, perched high above his head. He is away from home most of the time because there is a war going on and he has to fight in it. On those occasions when he is with us, I love the sight of him, the halo of thick black hair, the symmetry of his body, the tumble of tight, compact muscles shifting quietly under his uniform. His omnipotence is palpable, though not suffocating or overpowering. He is beautiful, but his beauty is modest. As a child, I want to talk about the satiny eggplant color on father's face when he returns home after months away. I want to talk about his boots, muddied and nicked. I want to talk about old wounds, puckered scars that glisten like mother of pearl against his sun-brown abdomen, strange griefs of delicate luster hidden from view. I never know what exactly he does during those intermittent months. Our father cups his other life away from us inside himself. My sister and I want what he wouldn't give us, his stories, his explanations. Rampant and obstreperous like firecrackers, I know they are inside his skin. Every time he vanishes into some remote province of our country, I ask my sister, why does he have to go? Doesn't he want to stay here with us? He has to go where he is ordered, my sister answers. The war is far away and he goes to it, I ask. My sister stoops over and pulls me toward her. Yes, but he will come back soon. There she stands in front of me, rocking on her toes and heels and offering me her promises and reassurances. Will it come to us right here where we are? The war? No, it won't come here. That's why he goes away to fight, so the war can be kept far away. She tells me the names of places where the war supposedly is taking place, but they blend together like distant shadows. Our mother's side of the family is Catholic, so we celebrate Christmas. Every Christmas Eve, Ken and I place our father's military boots inside our door, outside our door, with profligate coatings of thick black polish. They look beautiful, hefty, and brand new. Santa Claus, we are assured, would leave our presents next to them. So, um, the next part I think I will read is just to have a different voice, is the father's story. And uh, it takes place in, it starts out taking place in 2006, as I said. And he's, a lot of his stories go backward in time, and so a lot of it is reminiscent. I wake from a long night's sleep to discover that it snowed heavily overnight. Wind has blown a swell of snow onto my windowsill. The shimmering expanse of white covering the grass reflects the sun's glare. Roofs, trees, cars, everything is covered in snow. Beyond them, against a stretch of acquisitive white, a steeple dances in the, mi in the mist. A pure silvery world has been created, separate from the world of yesterday. Once I used to wish for the infinite beauty of a snowfall. As a child in Saigon, I read about it. The wind-whipped powder, the geometric flakes, tree branches sheathed in white. So different from the tropical swelter I was born in. Virginia is not a state that gets heavy snow. Cars stall or slip aimlessly in the whisper of frost. Those who do not dare to wander out will stand by their windows to watch the snow lash soundlessly toward them. The clock on my bedside table shows that it is still early morning, but in this weather, my daughter might already have left for work. 
I run my thumb over the tips of my fingers shriveled in the cold. I exhaled and watched the uneasy vapor drift. Reflexively, I touched the familiar patch of abdominal scar tissue. How long ago that was, that dark rainy night when I parachuted into enemy territory, crawled through black earth crowded with underbrush of thorn and thistle and rotting trees. The wound on my stomach had turned necrotic and I had no antibiotics. The me medical kit was lost in the storm that downed the helicopter. I knew how to improvise. Luckily, a swarm of flies was buzzing about, attracted to decayed flesh. I dropped to my knees, unbuttoned my shirt, and proffered my wound to them. The next day, the bandaged area teemed with an infestation of maggots. I kept it covered up, checking only once in the morning to make sure the maggots were eating abscess tissue, not healthy pink flesh. I could feel them wriggle and swarm. The stench of blood lingered, refusing to be fanned away. A muffled groan lodges inside my chest, followed by a series of fitful coughs. Pert footsteps stop at my bedroom door. My child? Yes, though not a child any longer, of course. A grown woman who must get to the office in the snow. I see the faint creases on her face, creases that deepen when she is in thought. My, I ask tentatively. She nods. I smile. She can be, she can be sweet and caring, if on occasion distant. We do not always speak to each other in our language. Sometimes it is easier to speak a new language. Dispensing with normal courtesy. How are you? How do you feel today? She comes straight over to inspect me. With a certain theatricality, she rolls up my shirt sleeve and peeks at my upper arm. Revealed thus, I can see my own true unprosperous thinness. As if in grief, there it is. The dull model skin, the angular wrist, the brittleness of bones, the ache inside. No one here knows how things were for me. Years ago, my now crooked fingers were made to perform wondrous feats. Through these fingers, ropes and cords were passed through tangles and loops and emerged as knots that came with names. The double black wall hitch, fisherman's bend, Turk's head. It was all part of the training. We rehearsed every contingency while blindfolded. Cyanide pills were sewn inside shirt sleeves and trouser hems. I practiced the motion with my hands tied. Body curled forward to receive the end to suffering. I bit open the seams. The pills would be within tongue's reach if a mission failed. I could swallow death. It is almost eight in the morning, but the light is beginning to darken under the weight of hanging clouds. I glance at the basket on the credenza. There is a plate of sticky rice, dried shrimp, and Chinese sausage. Mai subscribed to what we traditionally call kum tang, monthly rice. Her subscription entitles her to home-cooked Vietnamese food made by two women who have over the years developed a steadfast following. We now dine on whatever the two women choose to prepare and deliver each day. They typically bring comfort foods, fried vermicelli, catfish, caramelized in soy sauce, fish sauce and melted sugar. A clear broth soup that is so delicate it tastes more like tea than soup. Eggs scramble with bitter melon. Although I can do it myself, Mai feeds me, scooping the sticky rice from the plate with her fingers and rolling it into a ball. I open my mouth and swallow what she slips into me. Time floats, then curls and curves backward into itself. Coaxed by the lure of memory, my mind drifts into an imagined world from years past. The distant chant of an itinerant peddler hawking food swims in my ears. Cameron pods fall on the misshapen sidewalks, cracked open by the Saigon heat. I shake my head almost too violently. 
Saigon still wraps itself around me and squeezes me with sudden force. Night turns on the television. A weather map shows precipitation remaining in our area, which combined with the cold temperature is certain to mean more snow. I see arrows and lines and a shaded spectrum of pink and red that looks almost ornamental. Are you cold, she asks as she hands me a tissue for my running nose. On television, the undulating green of a rice field grabs my attention. I can almost taste the succulence of a blade of rice, green and sharp, against my tongue. Pagoda roofs slope with architectural deliberateness against the Saigon skyline. Above, a helicopter hovers. Conical hats ruminate, bowing toward black earth, covered by a shimmering liquid green. I reach for the remote control and raise the volume notch by notch. Tanks roll, truckloads of soldiers hop into chaos, voices emerge brittle with anxiety and sorrow. The number of dead is chronicled one by one, how quickly they are counted. A precise tabulation of American dead, American wounded. Scrap and remnants of glistening green present themselves to me from a distance. Many layers of forest, thickly canopied, I can see the earth where death is interred. The scarred trees, the dark shades of green that spill over from branch to branch, as each overgrown layer fights off vines and tendrils in search of sunlight, space, and growth. I take a deep breath and look again, though I wish to forestall insurgent introspection. Over and over, newscasters recall Vietnam from the American consciousness. Quagmire. Now stretches of monochromatic orange and brown desert tremble in the sun's haze. Desert towns are besieged against a drifting landscape of sand and sloping plateaus. I hear of continuing fights in embattled cities around, along the Euphrates, Basra, Baghdad. In the background, outside the focus of the camera's lens, a cactus blooms against the sunburned sagebrush. I see crumbled sections of mosque, the traveling dust storm, the treacherous movement of, of shadows against gentle date palms. There is no assurance of order here in this self-canceling landscape where sand obliterates sand. Everything now occurs here, the way it occurred there so many years ago. The dispute the town is controlled by a clutch of government soldiers one day, unofficial militias of one religious sect or another in the next. A soldier's body is found floating in the Euphrates. Armies slip across borders, attack, and retreat. I think of Phnom Penh, Cambodia, Vientiane, Laos. I might have been echoing them in my sleep. A television announcer asks about exit strategies, that pernicious little phrase. I know the calamity of being this country's ally, the unleashing of warring factions of fire and chaos, and then the declaration of victory. The escalating cost is proving to be too much. Too much blood, too much treasury, all adding up to a pointless generosity. I can see politicians in Washington, D.C. preening for the next news cycle. How can they be blamed? They didn't know things would turn out like this. I watch as what is going on as someone who was born in a poor country. I see how they swing the wrecking ball. I know how the weak country has to wheedle. With each successive moment, they are deeper into the very war from which they wish to exit. It is familiar, a shadowed history that stalks and does not recede. It has been more than 30 years since Vietnam fell, but 1975 is still here, held to enormous scale inside me. It is now 2006. The year hardly matters. Why would it be different now? They continue to cartwheel from one disposable country to the next saving the masses and then abandoning them. 
Myra has returned to my bedside and wipes my face with a washcloth. She does not seem to mind my occasional lapses. She has her own phantoms and demons. I know that she makes private but regular sojourns to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. I know that under her neatly folded shirts are pamphlets and booklets about the history, conception, and construction of this haunting structure. Once I happened upon her stash when I folded the laundry. The mere photograph of it on a book, its glossy cover tugged at my heart. Two black triangular granite walls coming together to form a V, sunken below ground like a scar in the earth. Names of American dead are etched row by row on its shiny surface. A diamond next to the name means the person was killed. A cross means the person is missing. Mai props me up and plumps several cushions behind my back. She has become the keepsake of my memory. Tell me, she says, and inevitably I do. So that's the stage um, for the father, basically, uh, to re retell the story of his life to uh, his daughter, who um, visits him, or, or actually lives with him until he moves later to the nursing home. And this, this, the child, the, the, it's told in alternating voice, as I said, so the next story will be um, my, the daughter story. And a lot of her story, the way I uh, imagine it, is, is really a combination of sort of childhood innocence, and it's a desire for, of mine to present a country at war as something more than a country at war, also. So I would like two parallel stories to be shared. One is a Vietnam that is at war, and for that part, all of that is told through the eyes of the South Vietnamese soldier. And all the major events that you've heard of um, that are major events in the 20th century, you know, like the Tet Offensive or 1975 collapse of South Vietnam. Those are all told in this book, but from the perspective of this particular South Vietnamese soldier, which is a very different perspective than the American perspective, and, and e whether it's the American left or the American right, um, there is a different story, a, a different sliver of story that is, is very different. And then the child's, the child's story um, is mostly about childhood innocence and then trauma, because most of the trauma in the book is actually told uh, and experienced through her. So uh, I'm happy to, I mean, I could read some more, but I thought it was just much nicer to have a conversation. So if you have any questions about anything uh, related to the book or any themes in the book, um, I would be happy to address them. Yes. This is my law school classmate from, I don't know, what, 30 years ago? 
sides of the same coin. So one story is a very deeply intimate story about what happens when you have a family that's shattered by war and the loss that follows it. Right? So it's, it's not that you have a loss and then you have episodes of trauma which you then deal with. It's pervasive and, and permeates all of your life. So in that way, um, I think all the time of Faulkner who said the past is not even, you know, it's not gone, it's not even past. So that's how most people have trauma experience it. That's an ever-present uh, phenomenon. And it just so happened that this particular trauma is from war. So then, so that's very small scale and intimate. And the other story, which is told through the father's perspective, is about national events and um, international events. And so the perspective here is that you have a situation where regardless, so regardless of whether, from the, from the father's perspective, he, you know, he allied himself with the US. And it's a very long war. And, at the beginning of the war, their uh, two countries' interests mer merge. Right, both wanted to have a kind of a Vietnam that is like South Korea, right, an independent, nationalist but non-communist country. Uh, at some point, the interests of the superpower shifted, so that it's no longer the predominant interest of the superpower to remain there because geopolitically the situation of the world has changed. Right? So China now was the big fear monster in the 50s, but in 1970 it's a completely different, it's a cold war, it's detente, you know, you want to shake hands with Mao Zedong. So Taiwan was be recognized, and continuing the war in Vietnam would no longer serve that geopolitical purpose. And it's a historical fact, for example, that because all these documents are now out, that um, the U.S. basically said to China and to China that you can take over Vietnam if you want, but just wait for two or three years until we're out, so that we have a decent interval to be able to declare that we've had peace with honor. So these are geopolitical dynamics that um, dictate what happens when you are a small country. So you know, Vietnam is a, very, is a very small country and it placed its faith really on the US. Not knowing really the reality, which is that all countries will serve their own self-interest. Right? So if any country is going to help another country, it's for its own self-interest. And you can have rhetoric like human rights and other things, but they are, from the perspective of this book, sort of uh, justificatory, not necessarily the impetus for going into anywhere. So basically, that's the paradigm. Um, so any foreign intervention will be within that paradigm. Right? So if Iraq fits into an intervention where it's in our interest, it will be continued, the aid. And if not, then it will be set aside. And it really doesn't matter whether or not there were thousands of Iraqi allies who would be um, executed if the US were to pull out. So it's not really so much a question of should one come go in and should one leave, but a lot of it is also how you go in and how you leave. I mean, even in a divorce, you know, it's, if, you want, if you've had a terrible marriage and you want to leave, it says a lot about a person how they leave their spouse, right? They've been 
a superpower, I, I would say, should act in an honorable way also when it leaves. And um, so in, in this book, what, what the story is about the um, treachery on many different levels. So there's a best friend where there's treachery, and then there's uh, countries that, where there's treachery. And um, I try to have it be told in an, in an intimate setting where you care about the characters. Um, so in that sense, that's what I mean when I say it's not really, it doesn't really fit into the left or the right narrative, you know, because the, the, the right would say, well, we have to win the war at all costs, and left would say um, it was a wrong war to begin with, and if it's wrong, you have to rectify it by leaving immediately. You know, the only way to rectify a mistake is to just immediately absolve yourself from it. And that's basically been an American conversation um, between the Republican and the Democratic Party. But that's not the conversation of people who are left behind who have counted um, on the U.S. Yes? I'm very interested in trauma, trauma, trauma on a personal level and trauma on, in a public sphere. In the public sphere. In public sphere. And I think of trauma, for instance, our experience with California, we're exposed to immigrants who've been in nations of civil war. The level of violence, these people who are now citizens of the U.S. or legal or not, they're here with us in our society, have lived with extreme trauma. And a lot of that is seen in domestic violence. Uh, it's seen in uncontrollable uh, problems in mental health. So you have this, the natural effects of trauma from these, you know, war-torn, ravaged countries. <clears throat> and then you have um, the collapsing economy. You have so many, um, we're in the most bizarre period of history right now we're going through currently. So I think by being modern, by virtue of being modern, more in trauma, um, we're exposed to all kinds of hazards that we've never had to face, generations that we've never had to face before. And, um, and I'm seeing a lot of authors suddenly start with narratives mirrors who are traumatized, you know. And I you know, I see a heroic action daily, just people who are in a traumatized state trying to carry out a normal life or the way but the fact that you're similarly of a normal life, right? So I'm just curious, I'm asking everyone who's smart <laughs> what they think um, that they would just riff on trauma and how they view trauma and our current history, trauma in the public sphere, trauma um, in the private sphere as a woman. Just, you know, any ideas regarding Well, I, I, um, I can definitely talk a lot more about trauma. I just, I'm wary about revealing some of the plot um, devices in the book. But just to say, um, you know, countries experience trauma and people experience trauma. Um, Countries experience trauma in many ways, from a political level as well, you know, as as well as from a landscape level. Um, in other words, you, you could see a, a country that has been bombarded; it, it would have trauma. It, it would suffer scars as well. And in this book, the trauma that I am exploring in this book is the trauma of how should I say it? Sort of the, the, a theme in the book is dichotomies. Right, so separation, um, hyphenation, fractures, that kind of loss. 
And voicelessness also is, is a, a, a very big form of trauma. You know, most children, let's say children don't have voice. Poor countries don't have voice. The powerless don't have voice. So in this book, um, it's not just that it's not linear. It's just, it's also that the way I write the book, and, and I give guideposts for the reader so the reader wouldn't be confused. The chapters are, have years so that you're not going to figure, you're going, not going to be lost thinking, well, what year are we in? Because every chapter, my editor tells me, you have to put the year on it. Um, so, and for someone who reads the book so carefully, and she thought that I needed to do that, so of course I did it. Um, so the, the way the book is written is that it's almost like the, ser the serpent swallowing it, its tail. It's very circular, beginning and end um, are not clearly delineated. And voicelessness is also an, an issue here. And I, I wish I could talk more about trauma that's in the book, with, because, because if I do that, the whole plot will be given away. So I won't. But I'll talk about a different kind of trauma, which is voicelessness. So the mother figures very prominently in the book. But she's always the one that is talked about. So her story uh, is told through the father's and through other people's eyes. When I wrote the book, I thought of the mother as representing Vietnam. So it's, it's in, the, in, the, in the novel, the mother was fought over by different characters. So very similarly, countries that are geopolitically important at one point in time, but no longer are geopolitically important at another point in time. At that point in time when they are important, they're going to be fought over. right? So let's say by the Soviet Union or the Chinese on the one hand and the US on the other. But those countries will never have a voice. So the war in Vietnam, for example, uh, was very much fought and managed elsewhere. So the mother in the story deliberately um, you know, the, the, the chapters are between the father and the kid, and there's no chapter at all that has the mother's voice. So in some sense, I'm, I'm trying to show that um, sort of women, poor countries, there are certain categories of groups that traditionally have been relegated to uh, voicelessness. And then another tr traumatic event here is that um, the child, the main character, Mai, will suffer through a very big traumatic event. And at that point in time, she stops talking altogether. So, um, not because she's biologically unable to. This is a very, this is not an uncommon reaction to trauma. Is that you want so much to articulate your hurt, but you're not able to. So you decide that you're just not going to talk. And in the book, um, the voicelessness becomes comforting. You know, she, she adopted <clears throat> the personality of a mute person, even though she's not mute at all. And the only way that she could find her voice again was <clears throat> through an American soldier who trained a minor bird to speak, and he gave her the minor bird as a pet. So when the minor bird befriended her, she so fell in love with the minor bird, she was about eight at the time, that when the minor bird kept talking to her, she felt like she has to reciprocate and give the voice 
uh, with only the minor bird, and then from then on, she regained her voice. So the theme of trauma, uh, w one of the consequences of trauma is um, clearly mental as well as physical scars, but also voicelessness. And um, I, I, I think that people stopping to talk is a not very uncommon response to trauma. There's also been some studies where um, a, a number of Cambodian women all over the U.S. start not being able to see, so even though when they go to see an ophthalmologist, there's nothing uh, biologically wrong with their eyesight. Um, and it's not even psychosomatic, but it, it's a phenomenon where people who have seen very horrible things suddenly can't see anymore without any kind of uh, objective medical explanation. I just want to share this with you because it's so interesting what you say. I was reading while I was on the web, there's this new form of therapy, it's called, I'm getting the initials wrong, this thing like EMD, and they take the, um, the eye rapid and they allow memories to synthesize the brain, because what they've shown with trauma is that these experiences cannot store properly in the brain. It's like frozen. So everything you said about the eyesight and the silence makes total sense. And this is a new therapy developed for people of traumatized countries for any kind of therapy. And through this therapy, they're able to synthesize and process memory. I very interesting. Thank you. In the, uh, the, the REM, rapid eye movement period of sleep. I can look it up. Thank you. I'd like to ask the last question. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which is, um, did you learn anything new about Vietnam, the United States, about yourself in writing this, this book? Um, you know, I, it took me 10 years to write the book. Um, it took me five years to write it and five years to revise it. And there was nothing that I didn't know, really, because I, I never did any research. The writing that I do when I do fiction, as, as my friend Lisa said, you know, I'm also a law professor, so I do a lot of uh, academic writing. And that kind of academic writing is very... Um, I don't want to say easy because that's not true either. It's just very organized. I, I have a, th a thesis, I have data that I research, and then I, I have the comfort of data to help me. You know, When I was in practice, I would have a brief, and I know that I would have to make a, articulate a certain argument. But the fiction writing that I'm interested in is never fiction writing that I actually have to do research. It has to come from... Um, a shadow space, or I, I always think of Adrian Rich diving into the wreck. Okay, it has to be a wreck that I am going down to. You have to go way deep down, and if you've gone scuba diving, you know that you have to stay down there because if you go back up very fast, you can do great damage to your physical body. So I'm interested in diving into wrecks, and the wrecks I've been struggling with is, is usually the wreck of war. So the research that I do are usually research that's been done that, that I do after the book is finished just for accuracy so for example if I talk about a um, battalion of North Vietnamese soldiers attacking Saigon I want to have make sure that I have the the name of the regiment correctly but it's not um, anything that I research um, it's all very much in a kind of um, mysterious 
process. And I really, really never know what comes next. Um, I never had a plot. I just have characters. And I try to think of myself as a therapist. So I think, okay, what would these characters do? And what they do becomes the plot. So I don't have the plot, and then I ask the characters to perform the plot. Um, the downside to that is that when you finish the work, you do have to tighten it so that people will want to turn the page um, to see what happens next. Because in the story, you have to have a thing that happens next. Um, so uh, it's mostly sort of internal space. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Young Jesus. You can check them out at youngjesus.bandcamp.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.